Well, this morning, we are stepping into our Easter sermon series, and the title of it is Awaken. Awaken. That comes from Ephesians chapter 5, and if you would remember, we just did a multiple-week sermon series through the book of Ephesians. That sermon series was entitled Identity. But one of the verses taken from Ephesians chapter 5, verse 14, is the following. This is why it is said, wake up, sleeper, rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. This is actually a quotation, but it's not found in the Older Testament. What most of us who study the Bible believe, this was actually a hymn that was being sung by the first century church, and the Apostle Paul included it in Scripture as he challenged the Ephesian church to wake up fully to who Jesus is. So each sermon that you hear throughout this Awakened series will be focusing on us awakening or being awakened to who Jesus is specifically with the idea of his death, burial, and resurrection. This morning, I'm going to deal with awaken Jesus and the cross. Jesus and the cross. And the reason why I wanna do this is is because I'm well aware that there are people who don't really understand what the cross is all about. If there was a governing text, a governing verse of scripture for my sermon this morning, it would be this, Romans 6, 23. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. The wages of sin is death. Now, in order to go through this message, I want to begin at a very crucial point that you will find in every single gospel. There are four gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Now, some of us have never read the gospels before, but if you do, in every single one of the gospels, you will see a definitive turning point in the life of Jesus, and that turning point is this. It's when he announces to his disciples that he is going to go to Jerusalem and die. Definitive turning point. And up to half of some of the gospels happens after that announcement. You see Jesus turning the compass of his life and the compass of his heart towards Jerusalem is the central reality of the gospel of Jesus. We're going to pick up our reading in Matthew chapter 16. And in Matthew chapter 16, we'll begin reading in verse 13, and we're going to read portions of Scripture all the way through verse 28. If you would read along silently, I'm going to read it out loud. The heading is, Peter declares that Jesus is the Messiah. Here's what Scripture says, when Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do the people say the Son of Man is? Son of Man is the name Jesus called himself. And they replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. 
What about you, he asked. Who do you say I am? And Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. And Jesus replied, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, which is the second best name in the entire Bible, and that you are Peter, and upon this rock, I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. Peter, in response to Jesus, and Jesus' questioning of who people say that he is, and then he looks at his disciples and says, who do you say I am? Peter brings this announcement. You are the Messiah, the son of the living God. Peter announces for the first time with understanding who Jesus is. And he calls him the Messiah. Well, what does that mean? What does that really say to the first century people as they're reading in this gospel? You see, the Messiah, that's Hebrew, means anointed one or chosen one. But in Greek, Messiah is Christ. Same thing. So when you hear the name Jesus Christ, you're really saying or hearing Jesus Messiah. And again, Messiah means Christ. Greek is just the, uh, or Christ is the Greek kind of transliteration of the word Messiah. And it means God's chosen one. Messiah means God's king. Messiah means the one that God would send into the world who would sit on David's throne and he would rule forever and ever. So what's amazing is Peter looks at Jesus and he declares, you are the Messiah. You are the Christ. You are the one that the Older Testament has been telling us all about. Now listen, at that moment... Jesus says something that is shocking. He hasn't mentioned it before, but at the moment that he's identified as the Christ, when he's identified as the Messiah, Jesus says the following, and I would like for you to read it with me, but I'll read it out loud. Reading on from Matthew, so just after Peter identifies him as the Messiah, here's what Jesus does and says. From that, time, from that time on, in other words, from the moment he was identified as the Christ, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hand of the elders and the chief priests and the teachers of the law, and he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Peter took him aside and rebuked him and said, never, Lord, never, ever will this happen to you. And Jesus turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. In other words, what Jesus has announced to Peter is something that Peter cannot comprehend. Because what's getting ready to happen next is purely of God. Purely of God. 
And so again, it says this. From that time on, from the moment Jesus is recognized as the Messiah, as the Christ, from that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the religious leaders and that he must be killed and on the third day raised to life. I want you to picture this. From that time on, Whenever Jesus met with his disciples, he would share with them, guys, we're going to Jerusalem. And when I go there, I'm going to suffer. And when you read it again later in the Gospel of Matthew after this initial announcement, Jesus looks at his disciples and he literally says, I will be handed over, I will be tortured, I'm going to be crucified, but on the third day, I will be raised to new life. You see, in the original language, that word must, must go. That word must, where it says he must suffer, he must die. It's actually a theological term that means divine necessity. It has to happen. It must happen. So Jesus is announced as the Messiah, and the next thing he says is, I must suffer. I must. And Peter says, I don't think so. Hmm. You see, when you think about Jesus being announced as the Messiah, what should have happened, or what he should have said would be something like this. It's like in those Hallmark stories where there's the young girl who's kind of a peasant girl and she's out in the field working in the fields. And then one day she begins to work next to this handsome young man. I mean, this is a theme in so many movies or something similar. And she's working next to this handsome young man and they begin to fall in love. But she's a peasant. And then one day as they fall in love and he asks her to marry him, and she says yes, and then suddenly he reveals he's not the peasant, he's the prince. That's like what happened with Fran and me. <laughs> right? I mean, you go from seeing someone one way, and then all of a sudden, wow, there's something else. You see, in that moment, Peter recognizes Jesus as the Messiah. Jesus, you're the Christ. And Jesus says, now that you know that, I must go suffer and die. It's not even close to what Peter had expected. But you know, in a strange way, he should have. Because when Jesus says, I must, it is divine intent. It is something God has called me to do. This is God's will. Peter should have known that. And here's why. In the Older Testament, when Jesus is first announced in the Older Testament, it's Genesis 3.15. Do you know this is the first time that Jesus ever appears in Scripture? It's right after Adam and Eve have fallen into sin. 
right after they've fallen into sin. And God is now announcing judgment on Satan. Satan, as you know in that story, is a serpent. And God shows up and he looks at the serpent, he looks at Satan and says to him, I will put enmity between you and the woman, meaning Eve, and between your offspring and hers. Eve is going to have a son. And that son, Satan, will crush your head. And you will strike his heel. In other words, Eve's son is going to crush Satan, but he's going to do it through suffering. He's going to suffer, but through that suffering, he will obliterate the devil. The reality of it is, I don't have this in my notes, but it's this. Don't you think that Satan knew this was coming? Don't you think that he was well aware of who Jesus was? If Peter knew who he was, trust me, Satan knew who he was. Now, why wouldn't Satan go, oh, I remember. God told me that when I go after him, he's gonna crush me. But you have to understand this, Satan can't help himself. Anytime the devil sees purity, he moves to corrupt it. Anytime the enemy sees God's best, he wants to make it dysfunctional. And anytime the enemy of our soul sees the image of God, all he can do is try to crush it. He can't help himself. But you know what's incredible? Is from the announcement of Jesus in Scripture, it says that Jesus is going to suffer but through that suffering, he will destroy the one who brought suffering into the world. Now, not only is it found in Genesis, but it's found in the Psalms, it's found in the prophets, where all of these men and women under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit are looking into the future at the Messiah, at God's Son. But the most profound one is Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53 brings to us this incredible image of the crucifixion of Jesus, and it was written 700 years before Jesus was born. Crucifixion isn't even a thing at this time. And I want you to read with me Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53, one and following. Who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot, like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain, like one from whom people hide their faces. He was despised. And we held him in low esteem. Surely he took our pain. He bore our suffering. Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And the punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds we are healed. 
We all like sheep have gone astray. Each one of us has turned to our own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before his shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. Yet who of his generation protested? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people, he was punished. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death, though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and to cause him to suffer. And, and though the Lord makes his life a, an offering for sin, he will see his offspring and prolong his days, and the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. After he has suffered, after he has suffered. He will see the light of light and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many and he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will give him a portion among the great and he will divide the spoils with the strong because he was poured out, because he poured out his life unto death and he was numbered with the transgressors for he bore the sin of many and made intercession for transgressors. Isn't it stunning? God's king, God's king came to suffer. And as you think about that, then suddenly we look to the Newer Testament. And in the Newer Testament, Peter, the one who said to Jesus, you will never suffer. You will never die. That's not going to happen. He writes in his first letter, about 30 years after that episode, he writes, 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 20 through 24, he writes to the people he's pastoring, but if you suffer for doing good and you endure it, this is commendable before God. To this you were called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin. And no deceit was in his mouth. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate when he suffered. He made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. And by his wounds, we are healed. You see, now Peter understands Isaiah 53. It's not until after Jesus' suffering and death and the cross, not until after the resurrection does Peter understand, and he quotes Isaiah 53, and he brings it into the Newer Testament as he pastors his people. And what does he say? He says this. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. And what's the next phrase? Do you remember it from Isaiah 53? What is it? By his wounds, you have been healed. Think about that phrase. By someone's wounds, you get healed? 
That makes no sense. You ever thought about that? By wounds, people are healed? You know, we've just read that sufferings bring wholeness, that wounds bring healing, and that death brings life. It makes no sense. But it makes sense because God has announced that this is what his son must go through. You see on the cross, everything gets turned upside down. You see, wounds, they bring infection. Suffering brings pain and separation. And death, death is final. But because Jesus did these three things, they are now turned on their heads. Now suffering brings wholeness. Wounds bring healing. And death brings life. You gotta get this. The enemy's weapons that he's thrown against humanity now gets flipped on their heads and the very things that he is using to bring chaos now are flipped in Jesus through the cross and now they bring life and they bring healing and they bring wholeness because of who he is, because of who he is. You see Isaiah 53 says this, he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering. Like one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not, but he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him and by his wounds we are so how do we put feet to our faith with this one? How does this work? Well, I believe that in the wisdom of God, in Luke chapter 23, God allows us to look at what Jesus said would happen. We literally get a front row seat as he suffers. And so what I want us to do together is instead of listening to me, I'm going to actually read the text and I want you to put yourself in that place. I want you to put yourself on Golgotha's hill. I want you to listen to what is said, feeling the emotions. And at the point where we pick up our story in the Gospel of Luke, Luke 23, 39, Jesus is now nailed to the cross. The Gospel tells us that there were thieves nailed with him, one on his left and one on his right. And as we pick up our reading, here's what it says. One of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. Isn't that stunning? Jesus, you're the Messiah. Do something. Save us. But the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God? He said, since you are under the same sentence, and what he says next is so fascinating, we are punished justly, for we are getting what our deeds deserve, but this man, this man has done nothing wrong. 
Then he said to Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus answered him, truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. And it was now about noon, and darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon, for the sun stopped shining, and the curtain in the temple was torn in two. And Jesus called out in a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And when he had said this, he breathed his last, and the centurion who had been torturing him for hours, seeing what had happened, praised God and said, surely this was a righteous man. You see, Jesus announced to his disciples, I'm going to go to Jerusalem and die. And the Gospel of Luke lets us stand right there and watch his suffering. Right there. And what we discover is, is the last announcement we read is by a Roman centurion. He tortures people for a living. It would be easy to say that he was the one that actually began torturing Jesus the days before, and he was assigned to Jesus as he was brought down the Via Della Rosa up to Golgotha's cliff. He was with Jesus the whole way. He was one of them that nailed him to the cross. And on the defense of his own life, he would have to make sure for Rome that Jesus died. And what is stunning is the Gospel of Luke says that he looks at Jesus and he observes his suffering and he observes his death and he comes to a stunning conclusion. This man is a righteous man. No one had ever died like Jesus. More accurately, no one had ever suffered like Jesus. So what he announces is simply this. He says, this is a righteous man. But what does the thief say? The thief on the cross, the one, and I always picture him being on the right side of Jesus. And the other thief is on the left side. And there's all three men suffering horribly. And the pain of the cross was so unique, so above every other pain, that a Greek word was formed to describe it. It's the word excruciating. Ex-crucifixion, out of the cross. That the pain was so severe and the suffering was so horrendous and horrific that a new Greek word was formed, excruciating. It literally means out of the cross. And here all three men, Jesus in the middle, and they are in absolute agony. And the thief on the other side of Jesus says, oh, you say you're the Messiah. Let's get down from here. Let's get down from here, Jesus. Do you... But you see, Jesus must die and be raised to life. He's got to go through the suffering, even suffering on the cross. And the other thief, I always picture it this way. 
he leans forward. And as he leans forward, he looks around Jesus. And here's what he says. We, you and me, man, we are punished justly. Why? We're getting what our deeds deserve. We deserve to suffer. We deserve to be punished. We deserve judgment. But this guy, hey man, this guy, he never did anything to deserve this. Nothing. And the Roman centurion looks up at Jesus and says, that guy in the middle, he's righteous. He's innocent. The other gospel tells us, he looks at Jesus and says, that guy is the son of God. He had to suffer and he had to die. What does that thief say? He leans back and he looks at Jesus. He says, Jesus, please remember me. Remember me. Don't forget, Jesus, when you enter your kingdom, please remember me. And Jesus says to him, today, you will be with me in paradise. You see, that was the concept of heaven that that man had. It was paradise. It would be a return to the Garden of Eden when everything was as God had intended it to be. You see, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. My prayer today is, is that each one of us would awaken to Jesus and the cross. You see, it's through suffering he brings wholeness. It's through his wounds that we are healed. And it's through his death that he brings life. Would you stand with me as we close? Now as we stand together, stand together, I'm going to ask that you would close your eyes just for a moment. Now that you're standing, I'd like you to position yourself on Golgotha's hill, on Calvary. And in front of you, there's three people. In the middle is Jesus. On the one side is a thief who's been cursing Jesus. The other side is another thief. But that thief has looked at Jesus and he has said, Jesus, please remember me. I'm as guilty as sin. I deserve this death. I deserve this judgment. And in that moment, he puts his faith in Christ. Notice he has no chance to do any good deeds. He has no chance to go out and earn good stuff to be right with God. The only hope he has is to put his faith, hope, and trust in Jesus.
and that Jesus would remember him in the next life to come. If you are here and you've never put your faith, hope, and trust in Jesus, the way this story is written, it's actual theater. It really happened, but it's theater. You were called to stand there next to the centurion called to look up at three crosses and you are to determine will I be like the one who rejects Christ or will I be like the one who accepts him if you've never accepted Jesus I would encourage you to accept him right now it just be a simple prayer but an eternal one a prayer that will transform everything in your life and the prayer would go something like this Jesus, I don't know everything there is to know about you, but what I do understand now is that you did not avoid the suffering of this world, but you dove straight into it. You became fully human. Jesus, I understand that you had to go to the cross, that you must suffer and you had to die. Jesus, in that, story goes and the truth tells me that it was my sin that drove you there and you took my place and you died for me so that if I put my faith, hope and trust in you that I would find the life that only you can give so Jesus forgive me for my sins cleanse me Jesus, I accept your suffering and your death in my place, and I do it in your name.